Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm James Kennedy. <laughs> See, we're doing it again. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. And I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. Welcome back to the Secrets of Story podcast. And guess what? We have our first guest episode in a while, and we've got a first. We're doing something we've never done before. We've got two guests. We are having a foursome, uh, which is not an entirely inappropriate way of, of introducing today's subject. We are going to introduce you to our two guests today, who are Linda Jaffe-Hull and Kier Graff. Welcome, guys. Thanks Hello. for having us. So Linda Jaffe-Hull is based in Denver. She writes contemporary fiction under her own name, including The Big Bang, Eternally 21, Black Thursday, and Sweetheart Deal. But she also co-writes novels with our other guest. Kier Graff is based here in Chicago. He writes thrillers, mysteries, and contemporary fiction for adults and adventure novels for younger readers, the most recent of which is The Tiny Mansion. But when Linda and Kier work together, they write under the name Linda Kier, and they've published three novels, The Swing of Things, Drowning with Others, and The Three Mrs. Wrights. And they're working on a fourth book and a fifth book. Welcome, Linda and Kier. Thank Thanks. you so much. Really happy to be here. Long-time listener, first-time guest. <laughs> yes. Short-time listener compared to Kier and long-time admirer. Oh, good. Thank what? you. Long-time admirer of which of the three of us, or or all three of us, or some subset of number? Nah, it was pretty clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, James has met my son, but I've never met James in person. And oh, yes, yes. I, I, I went out to uh, see some stand-up. Um, a couple weeks ago, my ex-girlfriend from high school was doing stand-up in Chicago, and one of the people who uh, was on stage with her was your son, who is hilarious. Yeah, he's funny. And around the house even more so, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> but he killed that night. He was really great. Like, I wanted to go up to him and talk to him just because of how funny he was, and then we found this strange hidden connection, and then I took a picture of the two of us and I sent it to Kier. That's so oh, cool. And, and Evan was texting me that night saying, do you know this guy, James Kennedy? And I said, only through <laughs> Kier Graff. So it was fun. So Linda and Kier, how on earth did you guys come to co-write together? So I guess our topic here today is co-writing. Kier is a longtime listener of the podcast. I said, hey, Kier, you've never actually been on the podcast. You got to come on. What do you want to talk about? And Kier said, well, let's talk about co-writing. And I tell you what, let's invite my co-writer onto the podcast. So you, and I said, hey, should we read one of your books? And you said, yes. Well, you didn't actually say it. James said, we should all read The Swing of Things because The Swing of Things is a book that is written with male chapters and female chapters written from the perspective of a husband and a wife, both writing in third person, but in limited third person from each person's point of view. We said, oh, that would be an ideal way to talk about co-writing. So James suggests we read it. So we both read it. And I got to tell you, man, it's a dirty book. It's, a, it really, it was like, I was listening to the book while my wife was in the house and I was like, I have to hide this. I have to not let her know I'm reading this, but I went ahead. I planned on going like, well, sorry, sorry, guest. I couldn't read all of your book because I didn't have enough time because I've got a new job and I'm dealing with all these other things, but I just devoured it. I read the whole thing and it is a tremendously fun thriller. It is a tremendously fun erotic thriller with emphasis on the erotic. And this was the first book that you guys did together? Yes, it was the first book we did together. What a way to start, right? I got a text from uh, Matt like uh, last night or two nights ago. It was just him. He just, he just wrote, erotic! Exclamation point. <laughs> and, and I wrote back like, 
like Siri, what is the last thing I want to hear from Matt Bird in a text <laughs> conversation? <laughs> um, um, and, and just to, to make it clear, this um, book, A Swing of Things, is about uh, husband and wife, and they join this kind of uh, secret underground uh, swingers club. And then, uh, you know, the, the highs and the lows and the fallout of what happens. Uh, just to make that clear with the premises. Yes, exactly. You know what I love uh, when you, uh, and just to make it clear for the listener, here in Linda's um, bio is in the back of the book. It says, they are married, dot, 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 but not to each other, Um, (laughs) which which is, which is very sly. And so what I want to know, the first thing is, did, uh, are either, have either of you ever swung? No, no. First of all, I'm a little bit of a germ phobe, so swinging doesn't appeal to me at all. And as I say in front of my husband, if I'm going to cheat on you, why would I bring you with me? <laughs> so, and he loves that, by the way, when I say that. Yes. And how, how did you, so why, why did you guys decide to write about swingers then? If both of you are not swingers, Kier has kept strategically silent, so I'll just, but I'm going to let him go on that. But, um, <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, we always want to be very clear when we talk about this uh, because we are very happily and long time married to uh, to our respective spouses that we don't engage in this lifestyle. But as writers, we're fascinated by subcultures and we're fascinated by things we don't experience ourselves necessarily. And I've I've always believed that you should write about what you want to know, not necessarily what you know, Um, the things that, you know, can inform the way you write about the things that you're learning about. But the, yeah, the, the subject matter is, is very much tied into the, the way we met. And Linda, jump in if I start telling the story wrong. But uh, essentially, so we're, we're, I guess this year, we've now been collaborating for 10 years together, which is amazing. Wow. We met in 2011 uh, here in Chicago at a writer's conference called Love is Murder, which is one of the worst names for a writer's conference. I never really knew what it was about. It's basically a mystery conference, but I always thought it was some sort of weird romance mashup. And we met there in uh, a hotel out by O'Hare Airport. Linda lives in Denver and was attending as an author. And I was attending as an author. And, you know, I think we met the last night of the, the conference in the bar. And to aspiring authors, I would just strongly recommend that when you go to conferences, spend as much time as you can in the bar, even if you don't drink, because that's just where interesting connections are made. And that night I met not only Linda, but several other people that I'm still friends with and um, you know, really good friends with. And I think as Linda was leaving the bar, she uh, said, oh, you know, what's your name again? Let's, let's be Facebook friends. And so we connected on Facebook and then we ran into each other again later that year in St. Louis at another writer's conference, BoucherCon, which is the World Mystery Convention. It's a fan-run conference for mystery writers. And it's a gas. I mean, tons of mystery writers show up and there's a really high percentage of writers to or ratio of writers to fans. So if you are a fan, you're, you're almost guaranteed to get some face time with some of your favorite writers. And Linda and I just, I don't know, we're just chit chatting. We were in the book room where all the booksellers kind of sell, sell things. And um, we were talking with an agent who does not represent either one of us and Somehow the conversation got around to, well, what's something you're interested in writing, which you haven't written before? And for, for some reason, uh, I think Linda went first and said, well, actually, I'm always kind of been interested in writing about swingers because there's some s- swingers who moved in uh, to my neighborhood and people are talking about them. And I just find it really fascinating. 
And uh, the agent said, well, what about you, Kier? And I, I felt kind of embarrassed. And I said, well, actually, I've always wanted to write about swingers, too, because I had read this nonfiction book about uh, the lifestyles, they call it. And the book was called The Lifestyle. And then I'd seen this documentary about it. And we just kind of looked at each other. And there's this sort of moment of, of recognition, but also kind of, I don't know. Uh, well, I guess the we, agent uh, said, didn't the agent say, you guys ought to write that together? She did. Yeah. And and I think I think that before she even said that, we like Linda had said that she was normally wrote light and humorous stuff. And I wanted to and and, she, and wanted to write something that was more serious. And I was saying that I tended to write more heavy stuff and I wanted to write something you know lighter. I wanted to write some about swingers in a, in a funny way, but hadn't been able to do that because it just felt like it was almost too self-satirizing. And so I had just abandoned it. And and so I think it was while we were talking about our struggles and approaching the subject matter that the agent said, well, you two should consider writing about that together. And that was a really weird moment because we did not know each other. Just we were <laughs> we were acquaintances. And then, you know, I think I, I think I turned red. I think I blushed, beat red. <laughs> I think you did. <laughs> the very idea of, you know, writing about naked people with somebody that I'd ne- never even met. But we thought, you know, I, we revisited it a couple of times and a number of months later, kind of decided, you know, what do we have to lose by trying this? A lot of time. That's a great meet cute. <laughs> <laughs> We've heard that before. <laughs> um, I always say when people ask, why would you write a book about swingers? It's, for lack of a better term, very fertile ground for fiction. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yes. Anytime you've got people having sexual relationships together in in mass, you've got a lot of potential drama there. And so, um, and 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 Kier mentions that I was sort of working on a book of, of that nature. I I had a friend that moved down to the Burbs, and said, she said, "I said, how's the new house?" And she said, "Linda, they're swinging in my neighborhood." And my brain just went. I'm like, "There is my next book," but I couldn't figure out how to do it until I ran into Kier. It, it, it's tough because you know, sex is. I mean, there's there's a bad sex and fiction award. Like writing about sex can be inherently, I mean, em- embarrassing. It can it can go off the rails and and the writing can just be bad. But we also knew, we discussed it early on that if we wrote this book, there would have to be a lot of sex in it because we didn't want to write like the Victorian novel about swinging where we're just sort of like implying and using, you know, tortured metaphors to, you know, <laughs> to get at the act. So mm-hmm. we decided that we would actually go all in. And I think some of the first stuff we showed each other was pretty explicit. And we both had very different responses to that. I I was mortified to share the a sex scene with Linda and Linda. <laughs> I'm more embarrassed about showing anyone my naked writing, yeah. <laughs> and, which is something you have to do with a co-author. Um, you know, I don't like writing sex scenes, weirdly enough, since we wrote this book and I, I would rather avoid them. And I love, if I have to write them, I like writing funny, awkward, fumbling sex scenes. Cause I think not to, you know, <laughs> tip off anything in my life. But, um, you know, sex can often be that way. And and we all know, you know, that's or at least more interesting to write about anyway. But well, I think one of the reasons the sex scenes worked so well is because they all were like uh, bound up in character. And there, there was like there was character work happening in each one and plot work happening in each one of them. It would never just felt like, OK, now here's a sex scene like a, a, a chess piece was always being moved in every single one of those scenes. I'm glad you noticed that, because that was really something that we talked about 
pretty, you know, it was pretty explicitly. And there's a double, tons of double entendre when you're writing a book about that has a lot of sex in it. And Kieran and I barely knew each other. And you guys know Kieran and have known him a long time. So whenever something double entendre would happen, we would both, he, he would giggle politely and I would giggle politely. And by the end of the book, we were just <laughs> letting it rip and laughing uproariously about the horrendous things we were saying to each other. And in fact, my husband would come home and hear me talking on the phone to Kieran and be like, what are you doing? Oh, you're just talking to Kieran. <laughs> but it was explicit <laughs> language. So what were you doing? Were you just shooting emails back and forth? Were you working in, were you having Zooms? I realized this was a little bit pre-Zoom. Were you actually looking at each other's faces? Were you listening to each other's voices? Were you on the phone? What were you doing? I, th I think my biggest fear about co-writing was that, I think I heard somebody say a moment ago that, you know, what, what do you have to lose? Well, lots of time. And it's true. I think my biggest fear was that, um, it just wouldn't work and there would be a lot of time invested in a project that just wasn't viable. And Linda and I both agreed that the story wouldn't succeed or, or that we wouldn't be able to, to successfully write together if we didn't have a clear roadmap for where we wanted to go. So we spent, I think it was seven months outlining the book. And at the time I was uh, uh, executive editor of Booklist Publications, or maybe not executive editor yet, I was and editor at Booklist Publications. And I had a, a day job with lots and lots of uh, evening and weekend hours required. And so I didn't have a lot of time, but we talked on the phone two to three times a week. Often during my lunch hour, I would grab my sandwich and then we would and get on the phone. And for like 50 minutes, we would just talk through the story really relentlessly, step by step, beat by beat, until we really felt like we had a, a story that was complete. And what we just had to do was to, you know, create the dialogue and, and the prose and, and and really bring the scenes to life. And so once we had that, we began writing. And the whole idea was also that um, we didn't want to be scrutinizing each other's sentences or writing, you know, alternating words or, you know, Linda writing nouns and me writing verbs. So we each would choose a different character and um, write it in limited third and alternating chapters. And it seemed logical to have a husband and wife. And so I would write a chapter, Linda would write a chapter. And then when we had chapters to show each other, we would share them. And then we revise each other's chapters before proceeding. Oh, so you gave the other person the, the ability to revise your stuff. Very much. And in fact, it, it, it's almost crucial. But, but what we learned that when I, when I mentioned naked writing, that was what got me distracted before. Um, Kier writes beautiful, clean copy. He really does. And I, it takes me a while to get so beautiful in my, but I feel like my content is always there that my writing isn't, isn't always there from the first. And so that was quite a struggle to get over that, but we made sort of a decision at the very beginning, I think, to really trust each other and, um, that we both had this, the best interest of the story in mind, the overall story. And so we, I just decided, okay, here it is. What do you think? And we really, we really edit each other fairly um, stringently, if necessary. But there's a there's an element of trust that's vital to this process working correctly. It's a very uh, consistent tone. Uh, like I can't tell where one stops and the other one begins. Thank you. That's that's we we do hear that, and that's always uh, a huge compliment. And and you know, writing different characters allows us to each have a little bit of different voice. But one of the things that happens in revising each other's work is it kind of blends the singular authorial voice together. And, and so I think that that is really the secret is, is just letting each other 
tear into, you know, and Linda, Linda will cut, you know, I'll rework her sentences and she'll cut out a whole page from my chapter or whatever. And we're often, we're most often in harmony about that. And only occasionally do we have a, a serious disagreement about something like that. And, and now three books in, obviously we've, we've kind of found our, our rhythm uh, for doing that. But, you know, to Matt's question about kind of a little bit more about the, the, the practical matters of how it worked, you know, we wrote this book and have written our subsequent books essentially on the phone. Um, we don't want to sit in front of our computer and stare at each other on Zoom. So we just talk on the phone. That allows me to pace around the house and, and, and Linda to do the same. And once we, ha- once we begin writing, we're just working in the same Word document and we're, and we're sharing it in Dropbox. And uh, I like to get up and, and write earlier. Linda takes her dog for a long walk. And by the time she comes back with her dog, um, she's, I've got something that she can look at and she can kind of read my stuff, revise it, and then dig into what she's doing. We can touch base on the phone in the afternoon if we need to. But when we're drafting, we don't necessarily talk every day. Mm-hmm. So are you guys, is this your full-time job? Is being Linda Keir the full-time job for both of you? Mm, sort of, no. It depends on, it depends on the moment, right? I mean, Keir, no. Keir, definitely not. I also do freelance nonfiction projects. And ideally, I'm working on a Linda Joffe Hull book, which I haven't for a while for a variety of reasons, mostly because we had a, you know, two book and then a third book contract on um, our Linda Keir books. And I had multiple freelance projects going. And Keir has a whole nother world happening at his house. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm a full-time writer now. I left Bookless two and a half years ago. And uh, the Linda Keir books are, are a big part of my writing career, but I also write kids' books and uh, middle grade adventures, as, as you alluded to during the introduction. And uh, I just completed uh, a new one and it's going to be, uh, it's really exciting. I can't, I can't even, it's an interesting project. It's actually uh, NDA. I can't even really say any specifics about it, but I'm very, very excited to announce that next year when I can. He's and... writing the biography of Steve Bannon. <laughs> <laughs> Bannon for kids. I've got, a, I've got a friend who I went to college with who eventually became a ghostwriter and specializes in right-wing ghostwriting, even though it was a very, very left-wing college. Uh, but at one point he announced his new book and he said, it's a combination of of lean in and zero dark 30. And I said, oh my God. <laughs> I said, those are my two favorite things. I cannot believe that you came up with a log line so perfectly attuned to Matt Bird that it combines <laughs> lean in and zero dark 30. That is wonderful. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So let's, but let's talk about Gone Girl because that's sort of looming over this career to a certain extent that it was like, I think when you guys got together, that was like the biggest book in the country. Right. I mean, that was a huge book. And I think it sort of opened up this space for the marriage based thriller and this appetite for it by publishers, I would imagine. And I think one of the things that Gone Girl did really well is it had very distinct voices for the alternating chapters between the husband and the wife. And she, I think that Julian Flynn did a really good job of that, but then you guys were like, Hey, if you're going to have alternating male and female voices, let's really have alternating male and female voices. <laughs> and you sort of took what she did and and sort of brought it to its sort of ultimate its ultimate apotheosis. How what what was your relationship like to that book when you did this? 
Well, I'll let Linda start, but I just want to say I, I wish it's, it wasn't too late to say this is the ultimate apotheosis of Gone Girl on the paperback. Because <laughs> it's Lean In meets Air Dark Thirty meets Gone Girl. It's all three of those. Um, we heard a lot of those two words, Gone and Girl, uh, during the particularly after we we wrote the book, and and there was one editor. Once we finished the book and our agent was like, this is going to be the biggest book that's ever, you know, remember that whole business here for 15 minutes? You know, everyone was convinced it was going to sell in a moment and be the biggest hit ever because it was full of sex and, you know, intrigue and stuff. And uh, we actually got a lot of pushback in New York because they were like, we don't know how to shelve this book. It's not erotica. It's not quite this. It's not quite that. And one editor said, I think we can sell it if you will gone girl it. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, exactly. And so um, <laughs> we did make a more thriller version of it because it didn't fundamentally change any of the themes and stuff we were trying to put, you know, put across in the story itself. You know, that the whole um, have it all culture and, you know, the, the dangers of that and, um the, the compromises and challenges of being married, but also the decision-making, you know, the dangers of decision-making other than traditional decision-making that can, that can be inherent in, in swinging or any of the other lifestyle choices. So we did that and then they didn't buy it. Um, and then we sort of went, went back to our original, our, our original no novel, but actually some of the gone girling that had taken place in that, in that edit was, um, effective toward the ultimate book. So, I mean, I loved Gone Girl up to about three quarters of the way through the book in which I, after which I, I think it fell off the rails because I think she, she sort of wrote herself into a corner in certain ways that she couldn't get out of um, much, much of it due to the brilliance of the book to begin with. And so, you know, I, I, I felt a little plagued by Gone Girl. Um, yeah, I imagine and, you would. Yeah, it was it, it, like, it was fascinating. It was a time in which people were adding Gone Girl to every log line. Every pitch was this Gone Girl, this Gone Girl, that. And then I think around the time we were starting to go out with this, people were actually saying, well, no, don't dare mention Gone Girl. It, it'll, you know, it's it's already saturated. But then as Linda mentioned, we did get that one editor and, and you know, beware the editor who says, if you just do, you know, a take that's a little more like such and such, I can take this through ed editorial board and sell it because she couldn't. And and that was definitely some time flushed down the toilet, except that, as Linda said, we we did keep a little bit of the kind of suspensey elements of it, you know, and I think ultimately it's it's like if you're writing a really in, intense relationship drama, it can't hurt to just go over it a, a few more times for pace and to just try to think about suspense. And, and um, as, as was alluded to earlier, you know, the sex scenes, there are so many sex scenes, so many sex scenes that we, we you know, I, I think at one point I said to Linda, like, let's, we have to think about the sex scenes a little bit like the, the boxing scenes in Raging Bull. Like they each have to be filmed a little differently or have a little bit <laughs> of a different feel. Um, you know, Jake you often Lamont put them in italics, I noticed. Yeah. Um, is that yeah. so the, so the prude can like skip over it? Well... Why did we do that, Linda? I don't remember why we did that. I think to give it give you a different distance, a more intense point of view. Mm -hmm. 
I think we were trying to heighten the unreality a little yeah. bit. I, I suspect that, you know, again, having no experience, but I suspect that the first time you find yourself taking off your clothes in a room full of other people taking off their clothes to, you know, get it on in some suburban home or whatever, uh, I suspect that there would be a, it would feel like an out-of-body experience. And I think that the eye towels maybe were just kind of meant to sort of highlight that kind of out-of-body feeling. And, and also maybe to, just to kind of to hopefully encourage the reader to kind of be seeing this a little bit um, cinematically or something, you know. It definitely obviously. worked. Yeah. Uh, when you're talking about believe, one of, we all know that one of Matt's big things is believe, care, invest, right? Um, uh, Linda, have, have you heard of this? Yes. Okay. So, And I'm sure longtime listeners of the podcast don't need us to uh, talk about it again. Basically, we it, w- the first thing, believe, is like, well, we we got to hook the reader by um, having these strange uh, kind of weird details about the world that you think like, oh, they couldn't have made that up. This is real, yeah, especially something about the hero. And this had so much of that. And I think it was essential to its success. I haven't said this yet. It's a great book. Um, and you, the, you kind of, the, the, the uh, socioeconomic set that is portrayed is really bougie. And in <laughs> like a almost unbearable way, <laughs> and, and like it, it seemed to me that you were like very much making fun of these people. I, I, I mean, not I wouldn't say very much making fun. I would say I would say tweaking affectionately, uh, poking fun. Yeah, uh, at this particular kind of person. And can I just read just a one part, like my favorite part of this entire book, which I laughed. And- out James, loud. This is a clean podcast. We cannot read any no, of this no, no, book I'm, I'm on not this go- very I'm not clean going to- podcast. <laughs> I, I'm not going to read any of the sex things. It, it's it's a different part. Um, uh, here we go. It's page three fifty nine. Uh, two characters are getting in a fight. All right. One of them is kind of very you know very stylish. Okay, and the other one is a bit more you know uh, you know college athlete, more rough and ready. And so. Theo eyed his hands. I know Krav Maga, he said, but there was a quaver of anxiety in his voice. I don't even know what the fuck that is, said Eric. I <laughs> laughed so hard because then Eric goes on to beat the shit out of him. And then, oh, but then he, he says, his, that he says, he says you know, hold on, even his martial art is some fucking hipster thing at the same time <laughs> stepping forward and swinging for Theo's stomach. That is great. Like, like that's like Tom Wolf level uh, um you, you know a social like uh eye for the great detail right there <laughs> thank you <laughs> that was Kier, and i laughed out loud when i got that at, in my inbox that day <laughs> and it's also it's such a tense moment and that and you like a, a beginner would think oh i have to kind of i can't deflate the tension but no it just makes the scene all the more better it's it's like almost like an arnold schwarzenegger line i know krav maga i don't know what the fuck that is <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because we definitely did want to kind of you know tweak the people in that set uh to some degree i mean eric is a flawed person for sure and he's he's kind of a slacker and he's not as cool as he thinks he is but he he did kind of give me an avenue to sort of make those kind of jokes but it was a fine line because you know he still exists in that set and we couldn't t- take him too far out because then you'd just be wondering well why is he why why is he even here yeah so totally. he, he just had to be kind of a half step removed you know you can't be too satirical because this is there is a thriller element here and it, we have to sort of heal feel 
the clammy fingers of death constricting <laughs> our hearts at some point. You have to be able to take this fairly seriously to really feel the dread that you want us to feel at some point. So this was, you had a very, I mean, when I finished reading your book, Audible said, oh, you just finished reading The Swing of Things. Here are the books you're going to want to read next. And I was like, oh my God, wait, no, don't let anybody see my phone. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Matt is the biggest prude I've ever met in my life. The biggest but... prude who's ever texted me the word erotic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was. Well, like, I'm sorry you felt like you had to hide it from Betsy, Matt, because I, you know, it. it for some some couples, that this you know can prompt all sorts of interesting conversations. Yeah. Have you found this? <laughs> have you found that people have read this book and then discovered swinging through this book? If people read the first three quarters of your book and never finished the last quarter of it, and then they're like, swinging sounds pretty awesome. No, you know, it's a it's a huge hit at book clubs. I got to say that. Um, <laughs> Because, because the, you know, I, I have to admit that I live in a kind of bougie world. Um, and I, part of the reason why I haven't written anything Linda Joffe Hall over the last few years is because I used to say that I love to write about the hidden dangers of suburban life. And I don't live in the burbs, but um, I live in the city, but I, I love that you know, the dichotomy between how people act and how they really are and, you know, all the, the fakeness and all that sort of thing. And no one wants to hear about Karen and her adventures anymore um, right now and for very good reason. But when I bring it, book clubs will read it and it, I can't leave the place, you know, because I'll, I'll go and speak at a book club or whatever. And I, I'm there for five hours while they're asking questions <laughs> and talking about their friends they know and the person they heard of down the street and that one friend that couldn't make it tonight that they're all pretty sure is a swinger and all kinds of unbelievable, amazing stories come up. But it, it just once again confirms what it is that I love to write about, which is people are people no matter where you put them. And if they get a little bored, they start to do all kinds of, of unbelievable stuff. That kind yes. of brings up a, a good question. A question to me is like, how has this been received by swingers? Because it, it kind of, in the end, kind of the the you spin the wheel and it ends on swinging bad. Um, like it's kind of a like a, a bit of a morality tale. Like it, the swinging doesn't go well for anybody in the end of this book. Um, and it's kind of, it, part of that is for reasons outside of swinging, like the the thriller subplot, the the complicated legal financial thing that's going on. Um, but um, it, it, so what do actual swingers who, you know, I bet there are many well-adjusted, you know, normal swingers. Um, how, how, what, what is their opinion of this thing that kind of in the end comes out against it? Well, before we get to that, I just want to say, though, regarding the end, it, it's not really a, a random spin of the wheel. I mean, we talked a lot about the tone of the ending. And, and in fact, literally just moments ago, a text popped up from a friend who had said that he loved the book. But he thought we were way too moralistic and mean to our characters at the end, and it should have had a much happier ending. But we ended it the way we did because all the research we did showed that for most people, the, the swinging lifestyle does not end well. Most couples who experiment with it end up having a negative experience. I'm not saying that there aren't people who are haven't, you know, some people have been doing it for 20 years and it's the best thing that ever happened in their marriage and they're in love with it. And, and that's great. More power to them. I mean, I don't. I don't morally condemn anybody for their sexual choices, whatever, but the, all the reading we did about it, it just kept coming back again and again to, you know, usually couples don't go, go into it with the same level of interest. Usually it's one person in the couple and typically the man, we, we reverse that, but uh, typically the man 
bring it's his fantasy. He brings the woman into it. It might be fine for both of them for a little while, but it produces incredible amounts of stress on a relationship. And so since our kind of central question was, you know, what happens when a, a couple tries to kind of fix their relationship by bringing more people into it? Mm-hmm. You know, we wanted to to kind of give an honest accounting of what seems to happen in most cases. Obviously, it's heightened for drama. Obviously, we added some subplots. But that's kind of how we arrived at that ending. But as far as the response, uh, maybe Linda, you should handle it since you're the one. I mean, Linda, it is amazing to me how many people have approached Linda and said, I'm a swinger. My friend's a swinger. Like I've, I've had this happen like twice. And Linda's got countless stories of this and also reads, reads the reviews on Amazon. So might have a better sense of the, the way actual swingers are. Responding. Oh, you, you refuse to read your Amazon reviews? I don't refuse to read them, but I kind of stopped reading them some years ago because I just, I don't know. I, I found like it produced a level of anxiety that wasn't helpful to, to my writing. And Linda is able to kind of discard what she doesn't find helpful and take what she finds helpful. And, and so she'll read me the good ones if she feels that they're, they're helpful and of interest, but I don't, I don't look at them. I read my Amazon reviews every damn day of my life. <laughs> I read them. I don't read them all anymore because they're, I don't want to sound this way, but there's too many and too many books. Uh, <laughs> um, I love it. Um, but I used to. And so I always sweat. I sweat for the professional reviews, you know, for the trade reviews. And then once those come out, I actually like to see how what I was trying to do gets filtered through someone else's experience and, and, and personal life experience. And I think find that you can learn a lot through that. Not always. Sometimes it's really mean. Sometimes it's, you know, really congratulatory when, when that isn't warranted. But often you get somebody's kind of cool take on what you're writing filtered through the life they led, which they've led. So that to me is amazing. And, and I'm good with it. So the best review that I read on our book was from a swinger. And she mm. said, and, and I'm, I'm not quoting this because I don't remember it exactly, but it said, we are in our late 60s now, but my husband and I were swingers for three or four years. And it was the best three or four years we ever had in our lives. She goes, this book is completely realistic because we saw all the problems happen that they write about. But it didn't happen to us. I don't know why we were okay with it. We did it. We quit. And that was the end of it. And basically that she loved the book. She goes, it sort of brought me back to the glory days. <laughs> That's great. Wow. And I liked that. And and it was interesting because she, she admitted that there were a lot of divorces, a lot of problems, but that they had been really open about it. They didn't really keep a secret of their swinging. And, you know, I, I, there's a bigger question, which was part of the book itself. And that is, you know, in the sixties, when people were doing key parties, there was a, in my opinion, a sociological reason for swinging. Everyone got married. You know, you couldn't have sex before marriage in the fifties, or you could get pregnant. We may be back in that place again soon. Um, And you couldn't get an abortion or, you know, you were having an unplanned pregnancy. People got married early. And then by their late twenties, they were sort of like, who did I marry? And then mm-hmm. the swinging and then the divorces and they missed the, they missed the sexual revolution by like three years. Right. Um, but when you're in your thirties now and there's birth control and everyone has careers and you get married late and because you want to have a family and children, I think swinging is a whole different and, and interesting odd decision um, when there's kids involved and all that sort of thing. Some of which got cut out of, of later, later parts of the book. So some people are a little defensive about it. And like they're criticizing swinging, it's the best thing, or they're offended by the sex, which I don't think the book's about at all, although it's there. So, you know, 
it, it, it causes a lot of reaction, which is what you want out of a book. There's but, nothing like somebody reading to the end and then writing you an angry letter because there's too much sex in it. <laughs> I read I read every word and there was too much sex in it. So I, I one time wrote on my blog about the specific structures of different genres. And I said that for thriller, the first quarter is generally about discontent. The second quarter is generally about transgression. The third quarter is generally about consequences. And the final quarter is about victory or defeat. And then I wrote in a separate blog post about it's always the best way to end a story is to have victory through defeat or defeat through victory. And I think that you guys book, even though Audible wasn't sure it was a thriller, Audible was like, you probably just want to read another dirty book after this. And I'm like, no, 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 no I like thrillers. I promise. I promise. I, I was reading it for the articles, but I'm like, this is very much a discontent transgression. You know, I would say your book is more discontent, transgression, 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 consequences, <laughs> victory or defeat or victory through defeat, defeat through victory. But I think one reason why the book is more about the transgression than the consequences and the finale is that I was sort of expecting, well, at some point, this is going to turn out to be a trap, and then they're going to wriggle out of the trap, or they're going to do a little plot and counterplot and scheme and counter-scheme and cleverly execute a deft maneuver to get out of this problem. And instead, she it doesn't become the firm. The book never becomes the firm. It never becomes like, we're going to outsmart the bad guys at their own game. So but it does it, edge towards the firm and that it's about blackmail. Yes, there is a blackmail element. We will say that much, but it doesn't become about a series of moves and counter moves with the blackmailer. So that is, I think, one reason why Audible was recommending the books it did. <laughs> that Audible it was saying this is not discontent, transgression, consequences, victory or defeat. But I think, but I really love the way the book, I, I feel like there was an thriller element of it, or, you know, I feel like ultimately it did feel like there was a strong thriller element. It did feel like a thriller to me. And I, and I loved that there was, I'm glad it wasn't The Firm. I'm glad it wasn't all about, you know, I consider both the ending of the book, The Firm, and the ending of the movie, The Firm, which go in opposite directions to both be really dumb endings <laughs> and in very different ways. And they're both about sort of outsmarting the mafia and coming out on top. And it's just so cheesy. But you guys yeah. don't do that. You deal with much harder consequences. Yeah, I mean, it feels to me like it's a thriller only in the sense that like Bonfire of the Vanities is a thriller. I mean, not to talk about Wolf again, but I think it's a real like, like I kept thinking about Wolf while I was reading this, but it with a bit more heart than Wolf. Like there's a mm -hmm. scene at the, um, not to spoil it, but there's a funeral in the book. And one of the characters who kind of always wanted like a son, it like is like sees like the son of the person who died outside and he goes out to comfort him and he doesn't know what to say. And he's always wanted a son. And this kid, you know, just lost his father. They're sitting there, and then they just kind of throw the football back and forth for a while. And then like the kid like slips and falls down and he just says something inconsequential. It's just like a 10-year-old kid. And then they kind of go back in. And I think that that was a, a real standout scene for me. Like very subtle. Like you don't always have to write, you know, dialogue. It was the kind of thing that you do in a movie, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of like, you know, the scene in Jaws that we all, all remember in which, you know, uh, Brody is feeling upset about something. And then him and his son, his son is watching him and imitating him kind of thing. And just a wordless thing. 
and like when I when he walked out and he saw the sun, I was like, oh, I see what's going to happen. This is going to be, you know, he's, they're going to have this conversation. You, you didn't give me any reason to think you'd do a cheesy move here, but you did it all with him playing catch and you just felt every single subtext come out. And it was just really, really well done. And I don't think Wolf would have been capable of that. Well, wow. Thank you. That's uh, that's high praise. We, we you know, as, as far as, you know, we, we felt like it was such an... Uh, yeah, the emotional stakes are, are huge in this book, but also we're trying to write, you know, and even though there's a satirical element, we also were trying to humanize them and make them real. And at some point when you're writing about people that were kind of supposed to be real, you just, you know, when, when they're distraught because they're, you know, again, we don't want to do spoilers, but like when somebody's really distraught because they're in a really horrible situation where they feel, you know, emotionally naked and exposed and vulnerable, it's in real life, they don't execute a series of moves and counter moves to get back at their tormentor. And so we wanted the stakes, we wanted their responses to be appropriate in that context. And so it, yeah, we just did, we didn't want to Hollywoodize it. I mean. Yeah. As soon as Matt said moves and counter moves, like I, my heart sank like that, that, like that, that would have been like the worst possible thing. I I am. (laughs) Are you laughing, Matt? Yes. (laughs) I'm just, I'm picturing your heart sinking. And, uh, <laughs> and it's making you laugh. <laughs> so yeah, let's talk about your career going forward then into these other two books. So like, you know, you, you like to think of yourselves as general fiction writers, your publisher, I think definitely likes to think of you as thriller writers, but specifically as domestic thriller writers as this sort of, you, at one point you said, I think in the profile of you guys, who was written in writer's digest. I forget whether it was them summing you up or you summing yourself up as thrillers with marriages in them essentially. <laughs> and do you think you can break out of that if you want to? And do you want to? As Linda said earlier, the, you know, the swing of things, one of the difficulties in selling this, and our agent was just sure, like he sent it to like the top editors in New York and was convinced we were going to have like a bidding war, which we were so excited. We're like, finally. Uh, and then of course that didn't happen. And, and it was because, you know, everybody seemed to like it. I mean, there were a couple people who passed uh, and I don't want to name names, but one really, really, a uh, highly placed editor said um, that, you know, sorry, I'm just not into that, that kind of thing. I'm too much of a prude. But um, <laughs> but the, the recurring theme we heard was that they just didn't know where it belonged in the bookstore. And we, we were puzzled because we just thought, well, it's just a novel. You know, there are all sorts of great just general fiction novels that have lots of sex in them, you know, typically a little more literary or, you know, written by, you know, men from 20 years ago or whatever. But um, so we were kind of puzzled by that, and that, but that did really seem to hold us back. And we eventually found a home for this book at Lake Union, which is an imprint of Amazon Publishing, and they tend to publish. You know, I would say that this was definitely kind of more hard edged for them. They also have a mystery imprint called Thomas and Mercer, and they also have a romance imprint called Mont Lake. Our editor actually mostly acquires for Mont Lake, but we all agreed that this is definitely not a romance, and, and romance readers would would not respond well to it. So. <laughs> Yeah, it was appropriately moved to Lake Union, but I don't, you know, I think we were maybe a little bit of an uneasy fit for them. The book did fine there. Um, in our next book, Linda and I, you know, we, I mean, we kind of take it book by book. You know, it's, it is always about a marriage. It's always about, you know, we're, we're really interested in problems in modern marriage. But our next book, we decided to write an out-and-out mystery. And so um, Drowning with Others was an actual just mystery but it had a lot of the same themes. It had a, a kind of a marriage in crisis and some secrets, but it also had a dueling timelines because we made it kind of a, a multi-generational thing. So there were a lot of callbacks to the past. So it was a very, 
it was it was a book with some similarities, but a lot of a lot of differences. But that would have been totally at home at their mystery imprint, Thomas and Mercer. And then I would say that our most recent book, The Three Mrs. Wrights, is completely a Lake Union book because it is very much, I think you could call it a, a domestic thriller or whatever. Um, it's about three women who discover that they're all married to the same con man. And, um, you know, we thought, you know, I think in in some ways, uh, you know, I think that some of the things that James likes about the swing of things, he would also like about that because it's, you know, it was very much inspired by Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos and also like, you know, the whole kind of Dirty John phenomenon that was kind of exploding. And we were kind of like, you know, we were really living in the age of the, the grifter. Let's write let's yeah. write a, a grifter book, but let's let's you know really write something that the audience that we're building is going to respond to. And, and that book is done amazingly well uh, oh, for great. us. And, and, and we've gotten some response from, that. I mean, it's, it's fascinating because when you write about marriages and uh, uh, people reach out to you in a way that they don't necessarily, when you write, you know, like the other stuff I do, like kids books, I got a Facebook message a couple months ago from this woman who had had a very emotional response to the three Mrs. Wrights because she basically was in, she found out she was being gaslighted by a guy who was in a relationship with, another woman and she loved the book and found it very cathartic and thanked us for writing it. But it's, it's kind of humbling when to realize that, you know, what we're essentially writing as serious entertainment really does have these kind of deeper resonances with people as well. Well, let's go ahead and talk about writing for kids and writing for adults. Cause James, you just switched from being a kid's novelist to an adult novelist, which is not an easy jump to make here. You did it the other way. So you originally wrote three sort of political, sci-fi political thrillers uh, to start off your career, correct? Um, yeah, more or less. I, I wrote kind of, I, I, I hate hesitate to call those thrillers as well because they were sort of like suspense novels. The first two, and the publisher was calling them thrillers and people were like, these these ain't fast enough. And so finally, the third one, I just I just wrote an out-and-out thriller just to kind of prove I could do it. And and that worked really well. And then I promptly started writing kids books. Yes. Uh, but yeah, so I did, I did start with like kind of politically themed adult fiction and then began writing middle grade and was just starting to have a little success with that when uh, Lynn and I were like, hey, let's write a really d- dirty book. <laughs> let's write porn. Um, it's not. And the original title for <laughs> the, the title we wanted for the swing of things was Swing Set, which our publisher told us we couldn't use because they're like, well, we actually sell swing sets on Amazon. <laughs> and, and also because it also because I write for kids and, you know, we had to be very careful not to you know have people mistake it for a kid's book. And which is why we also ultimately decided to use a pseudonym because I didn't want. Um, you know, somebody who, you know, Johnny liked the matchstick castle and mom just bought him swing set by Linda Keir. <laughs> and so James, you did not do that. You're just sort of out there with this book that is sort of halfway between middle grade and YA. And then this book that is for adults and you are just, they are just coexisting under the same brand, under the same imprint. And I guess, so Keir, yeah. you did that at first too, and that you did not change your name when you first started writing for kids. What right. what is that what was that decision like for each of you and did you get pushback and have you have what sort of brand management have you had to engage in? Well, since I have no brand because my last book came out in 2008, like <laughs> it was easy to reboot the brand. Um I think as for writing for kids, I think I think the number one thing that you learn is to to learn how to write clearly and to keep the story moving, which maybe not for for adult writing for adults you don't have to 
use that muscle as much. You can kind of trust that they're going to be along with you on, on some parts. And so even though there's a lot of dare to know that is kind of twisty, turny, and complicated, the, the skills that I learned in keeping the story moving and, and keeping it at least seeming simple, even though the story is very complicated, I think that helped me out in, in writing Dare to Know. Uh, Linda, have you ever thought of writing for, for kids? You know, actually, I, I have, but it, the thing that I had this idea about um, absolutely will not work right now. I have a, a daughter that's um, 16, and she's adopted from China, and I had this idea about 10 years ago that I would write almost this this weird going back to China kind of look into finding birth parents, but with almost a, a magical realism. I know, I know, I'm getting way off the base here, but um, I now with sort of the way things are, I don't think I could voice the character without some blowback about, you know. Makes sense. Yeah. And so it, that's completely done. And I tend to write about adult themes. That's what not. And when I say adult themes, I don't mean like, like swinging, but um, I, I think I could write YA, but I haven't tried yet. Yeah. Kier, what about you? Uh, adult stuff and kid stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't really have have to do too much kind of brand management or anything because my first, uh, I actually wrote four four adult books before any kids books. And the, the first one was under a, a fake name because by the time I got the book deal, I kind of realized, you know, you can do better. Uh, so I, <laughs> I kind of let that one sl- slip out under a fake name. And I almost used a fake name for my second book too because I was like, well, should this be my debut? They didn't receive huge uh, first printings or anything. Um, the, the first book was published um, by an imprint of a, of a giant publisher called Five Star Mystery. And the, the books two, three, and four were published by Severn House, which is a very large independent publisher based in England. And they did very well by me, but they, t- they tend to sell a lot more to like libraries than in, you know, Barnes and Noble or whatever. So I didn't, I didn't have like a, a huge following or anything. I had to really worry about like, will they follow me with kids books or anything? And then my first kids book, uh, well, my first, well, my first kids book was with Roaring Brook Press, which is an imprint of uh, Macmillan. And so that was already kind of much bigger than anything I had done uh, with my adult writing. So in some ways, I feel like I, I kind of got more known for writing kids stuff just because New York publishers have more reach. And my next th- uh, three middle grades were with uh, Putnam in print of uh, Penguin Random House. So those, you know, I, I feel like I was kind of getting a little momentum and a little bit of attention for writing kids books when the Linda Keir thing started happening. And basically it was just kind of a conversation with my agent, Lynn and I share the same agent now and the respective editors and just sort of saying, does anybody see a problem with this? And like, totally nobody flinched. They were just like, oh, well, if you're publishing it under a pseudonym, it's totally different audiences. Don't even worry about it. So it was very easy to just also start publishing Linda Keir stuff. And in a way, I love the freedom of, of, I like the fact that we both get our names on the book. But also there's a little bit of freedom to do something a little bit different than we might do by ourselves. Yeah, I don't know. That's one of the cool things about collaboration is it just gives you a chance to kind of get outside yourself a little bit and try things you might not otherwise do. I think it's been enormously helpful for my um, process and craft and speed of writing and, and everything else in that when when you're sitting alone in the room and you're trying to make decisions by yourself, it can go slowly. It can be a headache. It can lead to you walking the dog for two hours because you can't write and frustrations. Whereas when you've got a, a problem and you've got a, 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 another 
another cook in the kitchen, if you will. We seem to work through issues and character and plot and story and whatever much more quickly. And as long as you trust the person that you're working with, um, I feel like two heads are better than one a lot of times. Yeah, that's what I suspected because the first time I ever like did any serious writing like in my early 20s it was writing like a murder mystery party with my best friend and i and i i write very very slowly but when i was with him and i trusted him very much we were bouncing ideas off each other and i was writing so fast and one you're like accountable to another person and they're expecting you to produce so you can't take that two hour long walk with your dog and so you're accountable and also there's just somebody there to catch you when you fall and bounce an idea off of and it's kind of almost also feels like improv like um if you if somebody locked you in a room and said write a you know a saturday night live skit you wouldn't be able to do it but if you're just up on stage with somebody and just bouncing off each other ideas are just going to flow and i wonder for like first time writers one way of getting out of your head is make your first book be a collaboration i mean none of us did that but i wonder if that might be good advice for people i know a lot of people listening to this podcast are you know aspiring writers and it like and, and i look back and i think you know i really started to figure out how to write by doing it with somebody else. It absolutely is is valuable. I mean, what my favorite part about writing with Linda is the part where we're creating the story and we just have these long conversations where we're just kicking things around. You're just making stuff up. I mean, that's the fun part about being a writer is just making it up. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I enjoy the whole process, but that is the really exciting part. And having said that we create these careful outlines that we follow, there is still an element of improvisation. And the fact that we're both writing different characters, I think the stories really come alive as, you know, because we create things that the other person isn't expecting at a scene level. And so you're almost, you know, and then you, you read the other person's scene where they've maybe written their character's perspective of your character. And then you go in and adjust a few lines of dialogue. And it is kind of like creating uh, there's a there's a life to it that you're really creating it on the fly at that point, and and that I think is really valuable for anybody. And and I'll, another thing about collaboration is just that you know find if you want to collaborate, find somebody who doesn't have the same strengths as you, mm. because if you're both great at plotting and you're not good on a scene level, then you're both going to have that same problem together. So what's really helpful is that Linda and I have different strengths. Linda is like our Supreme story editor, and she keeps, she can hold the whole book in her head in a way that I just can't. Like, I sometimes just get lost, you know, in at a chapter level, and I forget, you know, where we're going with all this. And she always kind of has that kind of true north star that she can kind of follow and, and pull us out of that. Linda, what is Kira's strength? Oh, yeah, he's a really good writer. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean he he's a <laughs> he's actually a, a wonderful wonderful writer as you know. He's got um an incredible depth of knowledge when a, I every time a scene shows up like if we you know we've discussed the scenes we have our book outlined and yes, I do keep everything in my head and it can really slow me down and make writing really difficult. But I can say to Kier, here Kier, we need in this scene blah 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 to happen and then it's like an easter egg in my in my inbox when I see that he's got a new scene for me. It often happens in the morning when I sit down to write. And there have been days when I am so intimidated by how beautiful the scene comes out and the, the quality of the writing that I'm like, I quit for today because <laughs> I can't do anything this good. I, you know, it takes me five edits to get something even close to what, what shows up. So and, you're uh, more big picture and he's more granular. 
I think that's generally true. I mean, generally, yeah, I don't want to totally oversimplify it, but I, yeah. I think I think that might be generally true. And you know, he line edits me though, like amazingly, he can fix any anything. Um, I think I'm good with dialogue, um, and I don't know if you agree, Kara, but <laughs> <laughs> you're awesome at dialogue, Linda. That that right there was great dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really great at dialogue right here. Yes. So, um, you know, we just work really, really well together. And and I think we both have done a, a very good job of checking our egos at the door because, you know, I respect Kier and his writing and his thinking process and his verbal abilities. And, and I guess that come onto the paper so much that I don't even worry about, you know, we I start at square D instead of square A when we when we start a project together, you know. And, and I've had friends that, have said to me, I love that one line where, you know, you said, and I know it was you and they'll quote the line. And I'll be like, that was Kier. And <laughs> even, even my husband has gotten it wrong before because we edit each other. So, um, you know, we, we go through the, the book so many times together that um, it's hard to know sometimes where, where our concept came from, but that for sure is a Kier. I feel bad. There are definitely times when I, I thought, oh, that was a good line and uh, that I wrote and then realized, no, that was Linda's, you know, I felt bad so when he, I was reading praise for your books and they would always say, because they were talking about you as if you were one person and referring to you by last name, they're like, oh yes, you know, here's this new book and Kier does a great job. Kier really <laughs> writes so wonderfully. Kier is a wonderful writer. And I'm like, well, that's really mean to just talk about Kier and not talk about Linda. And I'm like going, oh, right. By, by Kier, they mean Linda Kier. So, Kier brings that up pretty often. He likes it. <laughs> well, you get your name first on the cover. So that's my revenge. One of the uh, things I really liked is uh, the Sophie, the daughter uh, of the main character couple. She is playing with these dolls, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Butterfield, Mr. and Mrs. Black, Mr. and Mrs. Jellybean. And then like they, those dolls start like sleeping over at each other's houses. <laughs> it's, it's like she, on some level, she knows what's going on. Which of you was that? Because that was great. He wrote that scene, which is amazing. But I, you know, was really insistent when we started this book and, and there's a bigger scene that got cut out of it that the, one of the huge problems in my mind, it's fine if you're single, you know, if you're, you know, if you're married and you don't have kids, but if you start swinging with kids, your kids always know, and, uh -huh, it, yeah. and it's going to cause a certain insecurity. So, so I guess in my judgmental way, I'm saying do whatever you want, but you're bringing your kids into this world. And that's maybe really, really not fair. Uh -huh. And I spoke to some friends whose parents were swingers in the seventies and they said, Oh yeah, we always knew. And you know, I knew I was a really aware little kid and my parents got divorced. And so I knew they were having problems. They were not swinging. Um, and so that was a really big theme in the book. And there was a scene that was so unbelievably powerful where and was it completely cut out where the kids are playing with um they're playing doctor in the bathroom which is just another example of it that's and it. you you find it's referred to uh it's towards the end and he says oh they're playing doctor and like eric says what it's like oh don't worry their clothes are on that, that's as much of it is in there and yeah we actually wrote that scene and it got cut oh, two no. kids actually playing doctor well they're switching up the pills that are all in the so so in the end originally it was actually the death was actually caused by the children inadvertently playing doctor ah. like their parents. And, and we were told it was too dark and, and it was really hard to cut because I felt like it was really what we were trying to say in this book, like do whatever you want, but the unintended, unintended consequences can be so steep and that Eric and um, Amanda were left with this knowledge. 
of what uh, really happened. I think, that would have I been too was, dark. That would have killed me. <laughs> I think it, it's right to cut because it, it, it then it seems like it inadvertently puts the blame in some weird way on the kids. Um, and it, I think it is that character's the the the, that, the character who dies his downfall comes essentially mostly from himself. Yes. And that seems just more thematically right to me. Well, that's what the editor thought too. And so it was a hard cut because it was a gorgeous scene um, mm. written by Kier. Oh, And um, I've written other scenes that were, you know, gorgeous. I'm just not going to list them. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're talking about the, the doll scene, I, I think that that's like the perfect example of how collaboration can work and, and take you, you know, beyond your, the thing that you could do on your own. Because Linda brought that thematic idea and did, and I, I remember clearly talked about that a lot and said, the kids always know, even if they don't know, the kids always know. And so I, you know, I felt like that's my assignment is like, find a way to, in that scene is like, find, find a way to make that, to put that on the page. And so it's a scene that, you know, and then obviously Linda had feedback. I mean, to, to say that I wrote it again, doesn't, doesn't really do it justice because it, because it is collaborative. You know, I might, I might've, you know, done the original draft or whatever, but we tweak it together. We go over every single line together, but you know, I wouldn't have gotten there without Linda putting that idea in my head. And, and I think it just, you know, at some point you get so inside each other's heads and, and that um, it is really hard. To, I mean, I, I almost hate to ever talk about like, well, this is mine or this is Linda's or whatever, because I really, you know, None of it would would have happened without both of us. Yeah, I mean that's well. Two two interesting points to add to that. We hardly knew each other when we started writing this book, and so assigning each other a character, you know, him playing Eric and and me doing Jane, it was very very freeing. Um, and you know, you talk about characters talking and stuff, and I don't believe characters speak to me exactly, and you know, I've never believed that. It's never been my same. Opinion. But. But because we had characters we were developing that could speak to each other and we didn't know each other very well, it, it really was freeing in order to write those characters because they could, you know, I could get a scene from Kieran, and let Jane just go to town, you know, interacting with that scene. The book sold initially because finally, because our editor that we love took it to the head person at Lake Union and she read the first chapter about the bored sex that Jane mm -hmm. was having and how she was bored with her sex life. And she goes, oh my God, <laughs> that's my life. I'm buying this book. <laughs> you know, so she, she said she really identified with the, the, the sameness and everyday boredom of, of married sex after a while. So yeah, that, that scene was like excruciating. Like it was, it, was, it was, I mean, it was really, really well written and it's, it's, it's very good. Nothing could have followed without that. I mean, it's, it's so, it's funny that you say excruciating. There were times when I almost thought like, will people follow us if we open with this, but we had to open with that. Yeah. There's a, there's a problem, you know, uh, that people are uh, stuck in some kind of like false stasis like something's got to give you, you can't so, you can't start with mind-blowing sex you like you've got to build up to it <laughs> i have a question just a thought experiment about this first book about about this the swing of things like okay i remember uh when i was living in japan um i would do these conversational english lessons and one day and, and this one day i would say oh why don't you tell me some japanese folk tales i said and to tell them in english and i don't know if this is an actual japanese folk tale but the the uh my student said okay well there was once this little girl and she lived at home and she lived on the edge of this great mysterious forest and she heard all these interesting noises coming from the forest 
And her mother said, don't go into the forest. But one day she went into the forest and then there was a great party of elves and monsters and, and ogres. And she had so much fun. And then she went home. <laughs> and I was like, and then? And she was like, that's it. That's the fairy tale. And I'm like, is there a, is there a possibility that that kind of swing of things could have been written like, like that that was kind of like kind of like that couple that did it for four years and uh and and they were fine with it yes but that becomes erotica right does it i don't know it could be like a like a subtle human story you know it wouldn't be a thriller anymore i suppose i, I think it, it could be more like i, I could see like a literary it could be like a tom perota tom perota would be you know the the literary version of that i think but tom perota also puts in cautionary tales and issues as a result of of these actions i just think it takes away the reason i was interested in writing about swingers is that the potential for drama is so high when you've got emotions and sex and love and Mm -hmm. boredom and all those things coalescing in one group of people and actions oh i I totally I totally wanted their, you know, like, I'm like, you know, I think that these books work on a certain level of going like, oh, I'm enjoying the transgression of reading the book. I mean, you know, we talked about how the writer is doing discontent, transgression, consequences, victory, defeat. Well, I mean, even reading a book with a lot of sex scenes and it feels like a transgression and then you want to be punished for doing it. You wanna, <laughs> no, you want to be punished for doing it. You, you want, want the characters. Punished. You want the characters to be punished for their transgression, and you also want to to you you're desperately like, oh, the last thing I want to do is leave this book mid transgression without feeling that satisfying bite of oh oh good all right now I've been punished for it yes yes with me Matt, daddy I, I, I Matt is always telling on himself he is always telling on himself the the uh the I, I knew that the punishment for the quote unquote transgression was coming and I just was so glad it kept getting put off and put off and put off. And, and once it, once punishment started happening, it's like, okay, now we're in thriller mode. And I really enjoyed it. And you did it very skillfully. And yet I was also kind of like, oh no, now I have to read the part where they all get punished. Um, <laughs> I, I think Matt's got a point that, you know, I, I do think that like in, in, I think a lot of readers, and it's not just like a book about swinging or whatever. I think when people read about people, you know, kind of getting away with something that's really awesome that the rest of us can't do. Because probably a lot of people, you know, in some in their fantasy lives of, you know, maybe they, they don't want to do it in real life, you know, whether they're germaphobes or not, you know, they, they maybe fantasize about doing something really crazy sexually, but they're not going to for whatever reason. But, you know, I do think there's this weird human impulse that you almost want to see if people, you, you kind of don't want people to get away with stuff. Um, I, I think that's why we have so much of that in storytelling. I think that's why there are so many consequences for people who kind of like fly too close to the sun or something. I do. I am interested by the idea of, of the book, the way you framed it, James, but I do think that would almost been like a more of a light comedy or something. I think it would have to be kind of like somebody uh, like a bemused observer dips into the scene, has some quirky adventures and then kind of like dips out without any, um, you know, serious harm or something. But yeah, we we definitely raised the stakes. I, I guess I mean and you raised it like in a way that was like uh not diegetic isn't the word, but not like germane to the sex. It was, it was like a financial and fraud scheme going on. Like you, you say like you could do it in just like in terms like 
quirky characters. I guess, is, is there something, I think this is what we're circling around, fundamentally conservative and square about storytelling, that if somebody does something awesome, they have to be punished? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Except that in this particular case with this particular book, one of the the things that that I found interesting and in, in, as part of the story question was this whole Facebook had exploded when we started writing this book, and everyone was posting their fabulous life onto Facebook, and the truth behind what was really happening, and and the have it all culture of it all needed to be addressed. Can you have it all? Can you have everything? And the answer is everything comes with consequences. It didn't have to be this dramatic, but once again, we gone girled a little bit the uh-huh. book at one point. And I don't think it had so much of the um, the legal thriller aspect of it originally, but um, can you have it all? Well, no one I know does, but everyone I know seems to on Facebook or did at that <laughs> I mean, and I, I'm not trying to say you should have written the book differently because I think the book is perfect as it is, and I've enjoyed it very, very much. That's why I just said it in terms of a thought experiment. Yeah, yeah. Love that. I mean, I love the idea because that's where people go into swinging. And if you do research on swinging, which I did a ton of on the internet, and I have my eyes are burned from some of the things I saw, <laughs> and um, my eye, oh god. And but but I also I start I stopped looking for when I'd look up swingers stories, I got bad. Swinger stories written by men, clearly, that were supposedly from women. And I added swinger stories and problems. And I started getting a real, people would start writing their problems that they'd had as a result of swinging or the the successes they'd had. And I found that there was all this sort of bragging, like, swingers have less STDs than everyone else. Well, how is that possible? Right? <laughs> yeah. Swingers have better sex lives. Swingers have, there's some things I could believe, but other things I couldn't. And it just made it really fascinating to write about. And it made me know that just like anything else, there's goods and bads. I found that when I was a pizza delivery driver, I could like pull a U-turn right in front of a cop and I could get away with things that other people couldn't get away with. And I think it was because they knew that we were the only people on the road who had to prove that we had license and registration and insurance in order to do our jobs and that they Mm. trusted us. And I think that, you know, at least if you're swinging with somebody, you know that you can ask this person for drug disease free paperwork as opposed to other people who can't. Yeah, when Matt started talking about being a pizza delivery boy, I thought that was going in a completely different direction. <laughs> me too. Me too. And I was waiting. <laughs> Ma'am, I'll just leave this pizza right over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He would walk onto the like the 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 onto the set of a, of essential porno, and he'd just be like, "Well, just give me a fifteen percent tip, and I'll be and gone." Actually, deliver the pizza. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That was 10% me. tip, okay. <laughs> that was my life as a pizza delivery guy. Okay, guys. All right. Unwanted sexual advances. Yeah. We, we keep we keep bringing this up. I feel like our final, I feel like as we start to move here to a wrap up, I mean, I think that this, this is an interesting question of to what degree do editors demand transgression be punished to what degree do readers demand transgression be punished to what degree does audible demand transgression be punished in where they <laughs> shelve your book and what they recommend for after you're done with it and i think that i think that editors certainly demand it to a certain extent i think that readers demand it to a certain extent i think it gives readers permission to get as dirty as they want to get to get as fun as they want to get to get as in the muck as they want to get, and then get an out. I think that having the that having transgression be punished 
is a lot of fun. And we read certain that that's going to happen and desperately hoping that's going to happen so that we can leave the book not going like, okay, this wasn't me. This wasn't me enjoying all this dirty stuff. This wasn't me enjoying all this transgression. This is, I am outside of it. I get to enjoy it and then step back and look down on it. And I disagree 100%, but go on. All right. Well, how do you just say more? I, because I, I, that when when things start getting punished, that's when I just like, I'm on the side of my Japanese friend. (laughs) I I just feel that like, that's when the gears of plot start turning, you you know, and and you're just like, okay, now we got to do the punishment. It might be a peculiarly American thing. I mean, like the story of O or whatever. I I think we're just a very puritanical country. And I'm not saying that like everybody should be able to do whatever they want, whenever they want. But like just immediate when I said like, Oh, what if like there's something which there's these quote unquote transgressions happen and there's nothing bad about it. And then the response is like, well, that would be erotica, which is another way of saying, well, that's not worth considering. It's something serious, you know, or something that would not sell or, or not have the same prestige or could not go on the shelf in the same way that this did. And I, um, I think there is something about American storytelling that is, uh, you know, anti-transgression that is fundamentally conservative and square. I mean, when you think like so much comedy is like square too, you know, it's like it's enforcing norms rather than breaking them. And I, oh, I just yeah. want to- Transgression I'm not being punished that, is also a huge part of comedy. Yeah, so I'm not saying this book should have been any different and I love this book exactly as it is and I and it's it's wonderful. And, but but I, I'm, I'm just kind of like, I, I don't want your rule, Matt, you, you, the reason I say I disagree a hundred percent is because you sometimes say these like big, broad rules, which I think are only appropriate for like this social context that we're in and your peculiar fucked up psychology. <laughs> I, that, it's such a, I mean, James, I agree with you that I think it's a peculiar, peculiar, that's easy for me to say, <laughs> peculiarly easy, uh, American thing. And, and I don't necessarily think it's healthy, but I do think that you know, I think I, I also agree a little bit with Matt in that I think that there is an audience expectation of American, you know, readers and moviegoers and people that, that that is what's going to happen. And I think it is the result of, you know, hundreds of years of puritanical culture. Um, it maybe is also a lazy thing that sometimes writers can fall into, you know, but we're often told when we're learning to write that, you know, you've got to make the stakes bigger and bigger. And there's there's a real emphasis on big character transformation in a lot of American writing advice, right? Mm-hmm. To get that, you've got to take them, if you draw out their arc, it's got to, it's got to be steep and it's got to, you know, it's got to really, you've got to really see some movement. Most editors aren't going to be happy with this little slight incline followed by a little dip that ends up kind of on the same line where it started. But I, I'm not saying that that book can't exist and be wonderful and maybe we should all be working towards more more nuanced versions. But I do think that what tends to get rewarded in the marketplace is uh, bigger and bolder and more consequences. You know what? Can I give a codicil? Sex is always going to have be, be traded puritanically with consequences. Violence in American, oh. do as much of it as you want. No consequences. In fact, it's celebrated. Which but is sex, crazy. Uh, Which is yeah, crazy. Yeah. Immediately punish it if it's sex. I don't think Matt would have said what he said about transgression if we were talking about violence. Well, and you said transgression. I didn't even think of violence, to be honest, because you're right. I mean, <laughs> I thought of like actual, you know, our society doesn't consider an action hero mowing down 100 people as a transgression. 
And that yeah. is a transgression. So I, I think that we are, as a society are fucked up. We should have more books with consequence-free sex in them. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, yeah. At one point I wrote about on the blog how they I was watching The Hunger Games, the first movie in the theater, and the projectionist had poorly cropped the image so that it was cutting off the bottom of the image. And at one point, I never saw the movie outside of the theater, but Katniss was doing something to Peter that was not giving him a hand job. But the way the screen was cropped, <laughs> it looked like she was giving him a hand job. And the theater all burst out laughing. And I talked about like, if she had suddenly given him a hand job in the middle of that movie, people would have been totally scandalized and horrified. And they are killing all of these other kids in these horrific ways, feeding them to dogs and doing all of these horrific things. And then, and what I said in my blog post was, heaven forbid they do anything as healthy and happy as a handjob. And then I thought about adding to my blog from that point on, Cockeyed Caravan, as healthy and happy as a handjob. Because... <laughs> <laughs> But, There's an old uh, Lenny Bruce used to do a routine where he talked about, I mean, it was one of the early stand up bits about like violence and sex in society. And he was talking about how pornography is vilified and violence is, is condoned. And he describes the scene of, of a man approaching a woman on a bed uh, with a pillow. And what's he going to do? Is he going to smother her with it? No, he puts he puts it under her and they begin having sex. And that, you know, is illegal. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Well, what do you think about all this, Linda? Well, you know, it's quite a topic. When I was much younger, I was very much on my high horse about how, how, you know, puritanical we all are. And, and I tell this story about, I was briefly in a sorority in college. I don't belong in such a place, but they put me on the standards, like a standards chair, which is a hilarious place for me to be. And they wanted, this girl wanted to come in and everyone was like, she's a slut, she's a slut. And I made this big impassioned speech about who among us, you know, and how do we judge and we're women. This was long before, you know, because I'm not very young anymore. But, um, and I just hated the double standards and all this nonsense and I hate violence and I don't think there's a thing wrong with sex. And then the next week she was found naked in the front hall of a fraternity. And I was like, oh, well, okay, maybe you guys have a point. Um, but I did not take the turn. I thought it would. Yeah. And I mean, and so, you know, it, it just goes back and forth and we have, we have people that write about you use the F word in your book, but they're the same ones sending out Christmas cards with all their guns, with their families in them. And I just, you know, I, I'm so, I, I'm so bothered by our nervousness over sex and our our love of violence in this country that that I I have a hard time even trying to defend anything I do that has sex in it is is scandalous or wrong. Yeah, it, 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 it makes total sense. I just I, I, the thing that just cheesed me off is that Matt was using transgression in this very nebulous way, and I was thinking about all these different ways you can transgress. And the one way that he wants to punish it is like the most innocuous kind of transgression. Okay. Well, guys, I'm going to need to wrap up here. We're going to have to wrap up here. I think this has been a fantastic discussion. I think we've, this is, you guys wrote a very enjoyable book. Like I said, I had not intended to actually finish it. I intended to put in, you know, like people do when you go on an interview show and they're like, oh, hey, I started your book. And uh, that was what I intended to do. Instead, I just tore through this book. It was a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to reading your others. I'm looking forward to hanging out some more. I, The three of us will get to hang out here in Chicago. Linda, you, we will have to, uh, I will have to just enjoy your work from afar. But it was great meeting you. 
Yeah, I love how Matt uh, uh, just announced that he was going to be a bad faith interviewer. Oh, totally. (laughs) All right. Well, guys, thanks so much for coming on the show. We will see everybody at home, probably not again this year, probably in the new year. And it is, uh, but this has been a nice wrap up to another wonderful year of the Secret Story podcast. Okay, guys, uh, does everybody want to say goodbye? Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for having us. I look forward to listening to Secrets of Story throughout the coming years. Yes. Me too. Great. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.